0: Good morning, ABC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to the Story Podcast. Today I have on a super awesome guest, Mr. Quentin Jones. Quentin Jones is a, rock, is a Hall of Fame guitarist who is endorsed by Gretsch Guitars. He has played and recorded guitar with some of the most important names in rock and roll history. Among them are Al Cooper, Graham Nash, Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits, Robert Gordon, Marshall Crenshaw, The Rock Hats, Linda Gale Lewis, Billy Burnett, Johnny Neal, D.D. D. Sharp, Kenny Aronson, David Usikinen, Liberty DeVito, John Sebastian, and Charlie Gracie, who took Quentin on the road with him when he was the opening act for Van Morrison. Quentin has his own unique style and sound. He g- has gained fame by playing rock and roll blues, surf, rockabilly, and old-time country and western. Quentin is endorsed by Gretch Guitars, and in 2016, he was enshrined in the Rockabilly Hall of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee, along with being t- one of today's top guitarists, Quentin is a well-known music producer and songwriter. His music appears in movies, network television shows, DVDs, and has been recorded by some of the world's top artists. Quentin's music and projects have been covered by publications like Billboard Magazine, Mojo Magazine, Rolling Stone Magazine, Goldmine Magazine, the New York Daily News, and the Philadelphia Inquirer, just to name a few. Quentin's musical achievements have gained him mentions in a number of books. He is also the founding member of the internationally known cult band, the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns. The band has released six critically acclaimed albums that gain attention from fans, press, and other artists, including some of Rock's founding fathers, British Invasion, and even author Stephen King. Today, Quentin can be found, heard, and seen singing and playing guitar with his bandmates, drummer David Usikinen, and bassist Kenny Aronson as QDK. These three legendary musicians have joined forces to keep rock and roll, electric blues, surf, and rockabilly music alive and well into the 21st century. The band is currently producing new music in the studio. You can find Quentin and his projects on his website, QuintonJonesGuitar.com. How are you doing today, Quentin? Hey, Corey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to, to get into your extensive list of experiences.
1: Well, all right. We're ready to go. We'll do
0: whatever you need to do. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you start off as a musician?
1: How did you get into music? Well, I guess the very first you know, the two things that would have really made the first impression on me was uh, yeah, my, my older brother had a lot of records, and this would have been in the early 60s. And the Beatles, you know, were huge. I mean, that was everything, and it was a different time. When records would come out and music would come out, you know, people would talk about it. Mm. And it would be like you'd go to school and everybody would be talking about the new such-and-such record. and It was like earth-shattering, changing, you know. It was a big deal. The other thing would have been my father played guitar and he would sing around the house. And, you know, that always uh, impressed me. He had a beautiful voice. And my mom was an opera singer. So there was a lot of music in my house. And then being the youngest of six, everybody had a little different taste in music. So I would uh, listen to everybody else's records. And, you know, like my brother Wendell would listen to a lot of the California, the Beach Boys and some of the psychedelic stuff. My brother Bruce listened to all the British Invasion stuff. My sister listened to more pop stuff. Dad had blues and bluegrass and folk and old school country and mom am a classic so i would listen to anything and get my hands on it, and that would be where it all that would be where things started
0: so where did things move on from then when did you start to pick up your guitar start playing music as as an artist
1: well um i always wanted to play the guitar i started out with a tennis racket and uh i would take mom's dehumidifier and i'm sure she appreciated this <laughs> and i'd unplug it and I'd use that cord, the outlet cord, and jam it into the tennis racket as an electric guitar and the dehumidifier was my amplifier, you know, because I had a knob on it and everything, you know. But um I don't know. Being the youngest has its advantages, you know, because a lot of the stuff that is uh a pain, you don't have to do as the youngest. Cause by the time mom and dad get to the fourth kid, they're not as gun-ho about right. things, you know? But on the other hand, there's a little bit of a, uh, a little lack, lack, less lack of interest in things. Mm-hmm. And listen, don't get me wrong. I had a wonderful childhood. I, I grew up, I grew up as a lost boy, as a pirate. As a, it was an amazing life. I, I grew up in the horse business. It was just amazing. My parents were special and wonderful. But for whatever reason, uh, my mom didn't want to get me a guitar. It was probably because I was too young. I really was. But my uncle, by marriage, my, my mom's sister's husband, they were breaking up. And this is in the late 60s when divorce was like, oh, my, oh my goodness, goodness, you know. And it was also during a, still kind of like the folk craze. Everybody was going to be a folk singer. And my uncle went out and bought a beautiful guitar, and he was going to learn how to play it. And my brother, Bruce, knew I wanted a guitar. Mm. <laughs> and I got me a new guitar. And my uncle never did learn to play the guitar because his guitar went missing. Oh, well, yep. <laughs> but I had a brand new guitar, Corey. <laughs> so what'd you do with that guitar? I learned to play the thing, yeah. So, you know, and then it would be great because, you know, we didn't have screens. Our oh, life was not about a screen. Right. And I remember my friend Dave Kushabar, he lived, like, you know a good walk away and in like third and fourth grade, you know, I would grab my guitar, go out of the house, go down the streets all the way through over to Dave Kushabar's house. And we would bang on the guitars all day, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's just the type of thing that just seems to be missing in the world, you know, and it wasn't about, you know, where you at in a safe spot and, you know, mommy wrapping me in cotton, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and we, uh, you know, we roughed it out and we were kids. So, you know, I started doing that. And and really and truly, I totally stank. I was horrendous. I was not a good, you know, early guitar player. But I didn't give up, you know. Mm. And uh, we would grab a couple of kids. You'd sit around and want to start a band, you know. And so this kid got a drum set, you know, for Christmas. So he's the drummer. Right. Didn't matter whether they could play or not. You know, this kid got a bass. He convinced his parents to get him a bass guitar. You know, I had to get and we would get together and, and somebody's, whoever parents were the most tolerant, you know, would tolerate it the most. The nicest parents. You know, we would get together and uh, we would uh, play in the garage, you know, and just make noise. And uh, so that's kind of how that started. I mean, that's where I, I actually started with it. And I, I'm, you know, I didn't really take it too seriously. You know, I was in the horse business, which is a very dynamic business. And, You know, I really liked that. So, um, but I started playing with some friends, you know, in teenage years. And uh, Corey, I have to tell you, you know, I did some things at a young age. I lived some life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I would do things like at 15 and 16 that you weren't supposed to do until your 20s and follow me. Right. Okay. And one of those things was I was, I knew how to get into uh, bars. I did. Uh, I all over I could I could easily walk in and nobody would even question me and uh and I was about 16 I walked in you know prior to being prior to this event music and artists were like gods they were they were unattainable you weren't going to do it I remember talking to my brother Bruce saying I want to be in the music business and he was like how are you going to do that (laughs) you know because you're in Lancaster this is before this is going back you know there was, there was discos here. You know this is in the seventies. It was disco. So anyways, you know uh, I remember going over to my friend's house. Now I was a big Beatles fan and a big Jimi Hendrix fan, a big sixties fan. Big, but I remember my friend playing me the first Sex Pistols album. You know, and it was like lightning. You know, and um, I went into a bar, a local bar called the Village. Mm, mm. And there was a band there. This would have been about 1980, maybe 79. I was definitely underage. There was a band there named, Lancaster band called The Sharks. And they sounded awesome. You know, and I was like, wait a minute. You know? This is somebody, you know, that's around here. And they sound like... And they're doing it. They're right, you know? And then I found out those guys were playing full time. And I was like, what? I didn't realize, you know, that you can make a living with music and not reach the highest levels of fame. It wasn't about that. Mm-hmm. And then another band I, I snuck in. I, I did a lot of things that you shouldn't do as a young man. Things I'm proud of. I'm very proud of them because I got to live life, you know? I mean, if I walked out of here today, Corey, and a bus hit me, And I was, I have, this world owes me nothing. So with that said, I walked into this place, which was the predecessor to The Chameleon, a friend of mine, Blair King, his dad owned a restaurant called Tom Payne's and they had a back room called Tom Payne's Back Room. It eventually was where they started The Chameleon. But this is before that. And he had a band called Rocket 88 in there. And I I walked into this place, it was like a cartoon where they stuff too many kitties in a building and and it's like coming out the (laughs) edges, you know. It was like, the whole place was like Mm vibe, And I walked in and there's this huge guy just pouring in sweat, you know. And he's standing on a table blowing the harmonica, you know. And the band's rocking and the people are going ape. And I'm like, okay, so you can be from Lancaster and make your living from the music. And you don't have to look like you know, a million bucks. You don't have to look like you're in, you know, Bay City Rollers or what have you, you know, Kiss or something. You know, you can be a just a guy or a gal playing the music, you know. So those were things that opened my eyes at a young age that made me start wanting to go down this road. And the other huge thing, and then I'll let you ask another question. Am I talking too much? Am I talking too no, much? I, talking too, no. I mean, since we don't have any music to play. That's right. We don't uh, have any music We're going to be play talking play. about that later. That's not yeah. my fault. That's, I not, I don't, that's, not, that's, not, that's not even Corey's yeah. fault. It's I. It's somebody else got in here and was monkeying around with everything. And they messed everything all up. But it's but okay. We'll get back, we'll get to, back that. to that. We'll get back to that. Musically, one of the things that really knocked me out was, it would have been 1970. I'll never forget. My brother had a zenith. A Zenith, Uh, that was a a company made in America that made records and TV, record players and TVs and all these appliances. And they were really good. Like you could buy something and it would last. And if it did, something did go wrong. There was a little guy downtown that had a screwdriver and a wrench and he could fix it. You wouldn't have to buy all new. Anyway, isn't that a great concept? That's a
0: great concept. So
1: my brother came home and my brother, Bruce, God bless him, always seemed to be able to find the music you know like new music i don't know what he was doing but he always was way ahead of the curve but he came home with a paul mccartney record called mccartney i'm like what's this cuz of course i knew who paul mccartney was of course he says it's paul mccartney's solo album i said what do you mean he said, well, it's not the beatles it's just paul oh no i was like what well who's playing the drums he goes paul what how can he play the drums and play the bass and and my brother said, well, he has a tape recorder that he, keep, he would play oh, one yeah. part, and then he'd go back. And said, my brother knew this, you know? And I was like, my God! I was like, that was... And I listened to it, and the album, you know, it wasn't one of Paul's most famous records, but it was really... You could tell it was a record that was really heartfelt, you know? Mm-hmm. And it resonated. And I was like, wow, if I could ever do that, that'd be cool.
0: And so when do you start doing that? When do you start performing? When do you start... Living well, that lifestyle.
1: Everything was, again, my father was a horse trainer. Mm-hmm. His dad was a horse trainer. And those people dealt with very affluent people. It was called the sport of Kings for mm-hmm. a reason, because you had to have a lot of money to really do it. This is, again, nowadays people have horses, purely a lot of people have horses for pleasure. But back then, uh, you would hire if you were a wealthy person. You would hire a trainer. And, you know, maybe you would have your own stable full of horses or something. I'm talking about captains of industry, right? Right. And so, as a little guy, it was a show. I went to the show. We would pack up the truck and go to the horse show. I'd be, I'd be 11 years old, and you'd hear mom coming down the hallway at school, click, click, click with her heels, and and come on, let's go. We're going to the horse show. You pull me out. That'd be wow. it. You know. And then I would go and we would load up the trucks. We'd hire truck drivers and big tractor trailers would come in. And I'd be riding the back with the horses all the way to Kentucky. Really? Yeah, sitting in the back on a director's chair having a good old time. You know, living the life. And then when you got there, you had to. You weren't like a 12-year-old boy that was all hormonal and couldn't talk. Right. Hi, honey. It wasn't any of that. You had to be, you know, you know you know hello there Mr. Simmons how are you it's a good day to you know boy your horse work right? you had yeah. to you had to communicate with people plus take care of the horses and all that so there was never a time that i wasn't quote unquote doing that you know mm. but what i learned early on that it is all, all all any great entertainment whether it be horses music acting painting has to come from within mm-hmm. It's not you can't just come up with like, you know, like people see me wearing my Western garb and they don't understand I actually have a horse. I've known it I've I've worn this stuff my whole life. Right. You know, I grew up around people and we weren't in the Western business, we were in the saddlebred business. But even so, you know, the whole so anyways, long story short, always. When did I start? I never didn't. So when did you apply it to music? So I would just, you know, first thing you would try to do is, you know have a party, you know, and, you know, have some friends come over, you know. Or you would, at rehearsal, people would show up. I remember in high school at Randy Paquin's house, which is right around the corner from where we're at. We used to go to Randy Packwood's house, and all the kids in school would come over in the basement, you know, and we'd play like rock stars down there, you know. And it was a great environment. Um, but I did a talent show, that type of a thing, you know, in school, and we'd play a dance or whatever. But it was really haphazard. It didn't, I didn't really get serious to this because I, like, What happened, since you asked, right? Is uh, in my early twenties, I met a I met a girl, Mm. Mm. and uh, she was a little older than me. She was in her later twenties, and uh, she, you know, I was working in the horse business, and I wasn't really taking music. I had, you know, I I didn't think there was any opportunity for me really. So, uh, and the horse business was really cool, but she started hammering on me. She wanted a house. So if we would get married, her parents would help her buy a house. So we were going to get married. But in order to do that, she wanted me to leave the family business. Now, I don't know if you notice or not, but sometimes people can get a hold of you and start, you know, playing with your head a little bit. Yeah. So I decided to get out of the horse business like an idiot. You know, and as soon as I did, and the parents bought her a house, and we were supposed to buy the house from them, she went ape, and that was the end of everything because she got the house, you know. And I was, you know, I got into a business that I was doing really well in, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to be, you know, Mr., you know, and I broke up with the girl, and uh, I decided to go in to become a stockbroker, which I thought that'd be fun and excitement, and I was completely wrong. It was the most boring thing ever. And I was just sitting there one day, and I thought, no, I'm not doing this. This is not me. And I got up, grabbed my lunch, my briefcase, walked out, got in my car. I said, I'm going to be in the music business. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care if I have to work in Harmony Hut selling CDs and records. I'm not, not another day. Mm -hmm. And I walked out, and that was the end of me trying to live the, the you know straight you know nine to five nine to
0: five regular person right. work job because I wasn't
1: that guy to begin I never grew up that way I didn't grow mm-hmm. up my 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 there was we didn't go on vacation. Our whole life was a vacation. Hmm. Now we worked really, really really hard. But well, like in the summertime everybody'd be like you know at the beach or just uh, I'd be in Lexington, Kentucky or Roanoke, Virginia with the horses. Right. You know, smoking cigarettes, drinking whiskey, chasing women, learning how to shave, being 14. All that that good, wholesome stuff. So what I did is I grabbed a guitar and I grabbed a friend. And I, you know, this guy that was a singer. And I said, let's just go start playing corner bars. Let's see how many we can do. And we got to the point, this would have been in the mid-90s at the point where we were doing 25 gigs a month. We were just playing like mad, wow. you know, because at that time you could do a, you know, a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But your night. Residency, yeah, yeah, well, you would go to every place had a little guy in the corner playing the guitar, you know. So that's where that led to. And, uh, you know, the other thing is, once I found out about the Paul McCartney thing, there was no tape recorder in our house that was safe. <laughs> I would impound any tape recorder I could find and try to build a studio. You know, again, I remember... See, there's creativity where you don't have. When you have to find a way to do things, you don't just hit a drop-down menu. Right, of course. You become creative. I remember setting up, like, all these curtains in the basement, and I had a drum set, you know. I had no clue. There were no books, there was no internet, there was no recording school, mm-hmm. so I'd just get a microphone, I'll never forget. There was this man, I would have been about 15 or 16, and there was this guy in Lancaster, his name was Ernie, and he had a little studio and had a TV repair shop. Now folks, for you that don't know, they had these things called a TV repair shop, because when you bought a TV, you kept it for years, okay? Right. And the guy would come, and. He'd fix your TV. Now, then you would pay that person, right? And then that person would go home and be able to pay a mortgage and send his kids to school and things like that and buy food. This was at a time when a guy that worked at Acme grocery store could have a house and two cars. That's gone. Those days are gone. So long story short, I got it in my head that my mom's Real to real tape recorder. And, and don't ask me why I did this. I was completely stupid. And for those of you that are listening, you can laugh. I don't mind. At 16, I for some reason, something happened with the tape recorder. I thought it needed to be oiled. <laughs> Thank you. So I took my mom's Singer sewing machine oil and randomly started to put oil around until smoke poured out of it. And I was like, ha! Ah, Oh, my God, <laughs> I broke Bob's tape recorder. And I got I got to, I went to Ernie's place. And I went in, and I was like, sir, can you help me? And I told him what I did. And he laughed at me. Not laugh, he just laughed. Yeah. And he said, don't worry. He said, just leave it here. I'll take care of you. Come back in a week and a half later. Thank God mom didn't want to listen to any tape recorder. Right, recordings. of course. Come back a week and a half later, and he cleaned it all up. And he didn't charge me. He was like, don't worry about it. He laughed at And I was friends with him for the rest of my life, by the way. Sure, yeah. So how's that? You want to ask me some more
0: questions? Yeah. So at what point did you start writing your music? Or- right away.
1: Right away. I had a. My mom had a tape recorder. Like I said, I, yep. I would have been about 15 or 16 and around there, and I was trying to use it. And uh, there was a reel-to-reel. Reel. And again, not knowing anything, you could go to Radio Shack, which was right around the corner, mm-hmm. and you could buy tape. And of course, it was a really cheap tape. I had no concept of what the difference between good tape and cheap you know, tape would do. And also, I'd run it at the slowest speed, mm. which is another no-no. Yeah. But I would write songs, and, and at the slowest speed, Corey, those those tapes you could probably put two hours on. Let's just, that, that, let's say an hour and a half. Yeah. Okay, let's go an hour. Let's say I'm totally, my memory's gone. Right. But it was a long time. So I would write a song and record it. And I had a box like this, a big empty box, you know, like a box that you would get a case of water in or something, you know, pretty big. You had to put your arms around to carry it, right? I had a box filled with tapes that have songs I wrote. And there wasn't a decent song in the bunch. They were horrendous. They were horrible. They were terrible. There was nothing... Re- they weren't even charmingly bad. Mm. Okay? But the point is, I wrote you them. You did them. Yeah, you did it. So that's how I started to learn to write songs. And since then, I've written a few songs that have had some success and have done okay. So, you know, and I, I you know, I'm getting ready to have another spark of song. That's the other thing. With me, I have a lot of sparks. Mm. The other thing is I learned how to write, too, on command. Now, I'm not up to speed with that right now. There was a time when I was running a a label and I had a lot of artists I was working with and we, we needed songs. So people would request that they'd you know Linda Gale Lewis, Jerry Lee Lewis is for those you who don't know, Jerry Lee Lewis's little sister. Back in the sixties, country stars always had a male and a female. Okay? Yeah. So you had like Porter Wagner and and uh Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton yeah. You had uh you know uh uh Johnny Cash and June Carter. You had uh you know, there was a, a million of, uh, Glenn Campbell and Bobby Gentry. So Jerry Lee's counterpart was Linda Gale. Okay. And they did albums together and everything, you know, and she was on the road. I mean, she'll tell you stories about when she met Elvis and all this stuff. Anyways, we did a record with her and it was, it was, we did it here in Lancaster and it was a live, basically live record with a few overdubs. Uh, we did the whole album in three days from start to finish. And on the, Second, the last day, she wanted a gospel song, and I went home and I wrote it. Charlie Gracie asked me too. That was the other thing. He, the last album I did with Charlie, we did like three albums together, and his last album, he, Charlie was really old. He could do old school gospel, and he wanted mm. some gospel songs. So I sat down and wrote four or five of them. I don't remember, but I wrote them these songs from. And so you know, by sitting there and trying to write all those songs. You, you know it's like anything else you you eventually you know becomes a uh, second nature
0: so you you mentioned the hell uh, you you did small town bars when did you start getting bigger and bigger artists' influence or recognition notoriety when did you start getting picked up by these bigger acts
1: well you see things happen <clears throat> things happen on multiple you know it's like there's multiple paths that happen um so how I how I did that was. You remember I told you about the duo, then we did, you know, the, the little acoustic things. Well, mm-hmm. that guy that was with me, he couldn't say straight for five minutes. You know, he had a lot of issues, God bless him. And uh I had gotten tired of him not, you know, him dealing with the drama. So I thought I'm going to do something on my own. And, you know, I, it was at the time I had wanted to become a little better guitar player. I was, you know, average or below average. And I wanted to be better. And I thought, well, what kind of music, A, could I sing? B, do I like? Because I don't consider myself a vocalist, even though the songs I brought you all have me singing on. You know, the songs that you can't play.
0: songs that I can't play, yep. All right,
1: anyways. Um, you know, but that's not my strong suit. Mm-hmm. I would prefer to have my brother Wendell sing any day. But Wendell's got, you know, a whole other life and he's got a whole bunch of things. So long story short, I thought I would do it. And and one of the types of music that you need to be well-versed in many styles in order to play is rockabilly music. What is rockabilly music? It's basically music played by people who thought they were country and they weren't. Okay. They didn't fit. It was a rebellious music but you have to be able to play some swing you got to play some jazz you got to be able to play some blues you got to play some country you got to play some rock so I thought this would be a good place to like really hone my skills plus I love the styles and everything so I I thought what I would do is I had an old keyboard that I could program bass and drums on and I thought I would do a solo show with this keyboard right trust me this is going somewhere so um I was at home messing around with it when my brother Wendell showed up and he said, let me try to sing one. And he sang beautifully. And I thought, boy, oh, boy, you know, this would be a great thing because, you know, here I'd have somebody that could go. Mm-hmm. What really stinks is when you have an opportunity and you go to go and nobody goes with you. And then you're like, it's right there, guys. All right, so Wendell and I started playing around bars and we started honing our, 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 our skill and, and quickly got tired of using the keyboard. So we decided to hire a drummer and a bass player, and we did. And we started playing around, and this would have been about 93, okay? And we were playing in a little bar in York. Now, when we would play, we were called the Rockabilly Brothers. When we would play, well, actually, we changed. We started to change our name to the, uh, we were thinking about changing our name, but I'll get to that. So anyways, uh, when we would play, everybody would look at us like we just landed from Saturn. We were not doing well. Mm. We, we sounded great, but people didn't know what to think of us. They didn't know if we were two big Elvises or, you know, they had no clue. And we had all kinds of trouble. We had fight. There were fights and rumbles, all, kind, all kinds of issues. So listen, there's this guy that comes up to us afterwards. We're playing this little crappy place in New York, and this guy comes up to us and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, we're trying to do a gig. He goes, you're wasting your time.
0: Wow.
1: He says, listen, you call my friend down at the 930 Club in, in Washington, D.C. You tell him that Pat from the band Live told you to give you guys a gig. Wow. It was Pat Daheimer from the band Live. And that gig that we got in Washington enabled us to, first thing we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is totally different. This isn't like when we play in Lancaster and everybody glares at us. This, right. These people love what we're, they're here. They're not here for the chicken wings,
0: they, they, they want to play. hear the
1: music. They actually want to hear music. This is amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. And that enabled us to go up through Delaware, get a lot of Delaware gigs. And we discovered that in Delaware, to this day, Delaware's got great venues. And the yeah. people in Delaware, when you play in Delaware and you do a solo, they clap, they applaud. When You, you know, during the instrumental, in the middle of the song, you know, if the saxophone person plays her. You know. So anyways, then we started getting in the Jersey and we got, and we changed our name. We weren't doing Rockabilly. We morphed out of that fairly quick. We started doing our own spin on it. So he dropped the rockabilly brothers, and to this day, people still say, you know, oh, Quentin Jones, a lot of rockabilly, and yeah, I mean, I worked with Robert Gordon. He's the biggest. Yeah. I, I wrote a song that the guys in the Stray Cats did. You know, Stray Cats are one of the biggest rockabilly bands ever. So yeah, I get it. But but our band was more. We had a lot of a lot of punk, ska, mm. and and rockabilly all mixed in. You know, and we would change gears. So anyways. All these musicians, when we started hitting New York, liked us. All these famous musicians, guys like Peter Noon from Hermits, Hermits. You know, Hermits, Hermits sold in 1966 something like 65 million records. Wow. What's this guy want? I don't know. He got a problem? I don't think so. Does he got to come here during my interview and start some crap?
0: I know. Everything's going wrong. I mean,
1: I know, I know, I know, you know, but... Anyways, let's go on back. Yeah. Where were we? Peter Noon. So these things started happening, and people would start showing up at gigs and whatnot. The other thing that happened is I met a producer named Richard Goderer. Mm. Now, Richard Goderer, for those of you that don't know, was the partner in Sire Records with Seymour Stein, who I also met. Goderer was responsible for Blondie, uh, He, he uh, uh, the Go-Go's, um, I mean, he wrote tons of songs. And, I mean, Sire Records discovered Madonna, wow. the Ramones, the Talking Heads. So you get where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. And Richard and I, uh, I, I what happened is the, the, the bass player in the Rodeo Clowns, And I started a little label and a little studio. We had this rockabilly singer that we were going to produce, and Richard Goddard produced Robert Gordon. So I thought wouldn't be cool if we had Richard Goddard produce this guy, right, get a name on the record. So I called Richard and I am talking to him. He's like, yeah, I'll do it, And hang up the phone. And I thought, wait a minute, he knows Robert Gordon. And we're doing like a Roots rockabilly label, and Robert Gordon is the king. I mean, he is the thing. Why don't I ask him if he's, you know, with Gordon? So I picked up the phone and I said, what about Robert Gordon? He goes, yeah, Robert's around. And everything. So folks, unfortunately, we dropped the guy we were going to sign and signed Robert Gordon. <laughs> and through that, I started meeting more and more people. And that's how it just starts, you know, just starts snowballing. I did uh, Robert Gordon and I met... I. Uh, I did Tommy Conwell's record. Tommy Conwell says to me, did you ever hear of Charlie Gracie? Hmm. I met Charlie Gracie. Charlie Gracie's, you know, hey, Graham Nash from Crosby, Seals & Nash wants to sing on the record. You know, this is just how you start doing it. And here's the thing. If you get, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you can open some doors. Yeah, but you better be able to perform when you get in the room because they'll bounce you right out of the room. And that's the key. It's not opening the door that matters. It's what you do when you get in the room that matters.
0: Absolutely, there, and it continues to be that way for sure. I'm curious, what were some of the challenges that you had with, you started your own record record label, what were some of the challenges did you ever have, obviously
1: there's competition. Lack of funding. <laughs> it always seems to be the problem. Here's the thing, when I remember in the 90s, everybody kept saying, you know, MP3s are coming out and you're not going to need record companies anymore. Because, see, the record companies were holding everybody back. Ha ha. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, the evil record companies. Now, don't get me wrong. Record companies are evil. And what they're doing to music today is absolutely shameful. Um, but the other thing record companies did is kept the market from being flooded with everybody who thinks that they're going to make a project that's going to be noticed. Mm-hmm. You still need people to promote the record, the recording. You still need publicity. You still need all that stuff. Like you still need to be able to come to a, uh, a talk show and have your music play. Oh wait, wait. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> but you get my point, right? Yeah, right. You know, everybody thinks that they're gonna like. There was a guy uh, named Christopher Cross who was huge. I guess in the 70s, he made a recording on a cassette, sent it into the record company. Somebody listened to it, signed him, and he became a big star. For the next 40 years, people sent cassettes in the record companies. You know, nobody got signed that way but one guy. So um the challenges was I I was able to get great acts on my label. I put together two rosters on two different labels of top people. And I just once I had it was you know, there, it's done. Now what? Right. I had distribution. I had the I had major distribution. We had, you know, but you know, a one two person operation no
0: is really hard. So,
1: yeah. so that would be that. And then the other thing is, is the world. The problem was the world. My, my whole career, the problem's been the world. I don't mind when people say I'm bad or great. None of that matters. I am who I am. I am here's the thing. I have a certain style. You know, the 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 thing you read in the beginning, I do have a style. I have a sound. I have an identifiable sound. You may like it or you may not like it. That's why I've never done good as a pure cover guy. Mm. Like when I do covers and we do a lot of covers, I don't do them the way the records are done. We do them the way we do them. Because I'm not a cover kind of guy. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's a whole other skill and a whole other talent. You know, the person at the Philharmonica Orchestra playing the second violin doesn't all of a sudden decide to start improvising.
0: Right, of course.
1: Right? So that's a skill in and of itself that I do not possess. So it's never a criticism. That, when I say the world, I don't mind criticisms and I don't, you know, take those too seriously. I don't take, you know, pats on the back that seriously. The problem is, is, is in the everyday life. Hmm. I'm in a total alien. And people, as soon as you say musician, especially if you're beyond the age of 23, they look at you like, oh. <laughs> oh. You know, that right. you're some kind of a this or you're some kind of, and they don't take you seriously. You can go into a bank. You have all your paperwork in order and they don't take you seriously. Really? Yeah. A musician, and I'll tell you what's really sinful. They're back right now. No one cares. They look down their nose at musicians. You see, this is my job. However, during COVID, when I was going on and entertaining people on Facebook, we were heroes. Mm. Everybody, thank God for you keeping us. But as soon as COVID's over, nobody wants to come. What, $5 cover charge? You're ridiculous. Let's go someplace else, get our chicken wings. That's the way it is. Right. You know, so the lack of interest because the public is flooded, I mean, Folks, stop listening to playlists. Right now, stop. Not permanently. Take a week. Don't listen to one playlist. Don't watch YouTube for a week. Buy a record or a CD. Or if you're listening to Spotify, listen to the album from beginning to end. Yes. Corey, I have over 2,000 records in my house. I've listened to each at least once from beginning to end. I will go buy records at a yard sale. I don't care who it is. It could be gym neighbors. It could be anybody. It could be, you know, and I'll I'll clean it, and I'll listen to it at least once from beginning to end on both sides. And you learn, and you can find some gems. You can find some stuff. You're like, oh, my God, this is great. We've been trained to sit there and go, this thing's click. Yeah. This thing's click. And next thing you know, we've listened to 50 intros. Intros, just intros, yeah. And you know albums used to be see and this is where the record companies are evil they got rid of albums the artists started fm radio that was all because of artists like the beatles really and that was all because of the beatles fm radio it was cuz they made albums as a piece of work it was a piece of work mm-hmm. and there was there was no million subgenres so like you might go into the mall Go to the record store and buy a James Brown record, an Elton John record, a Monkees record, you know, and a Glenn Campbell record. I mean, all over the spectrum, right? Right. Nobody cared. Didn't matter who you were, what background you were. That's the way you bought music, right? Not anymore. Now everybody identifies with one thing or one thing only. That's sad. It is sad. sad. And that is because the record companies, what they have done is they realize, huh, we have these America's Got Talent, American Idol. This is great. What we can do is every year we can create a star, sell a bunch of records, not have to build the catalog, get rid of them and do somebody else. That way we don't have to deal with these artists and you know their opinions and things like that. Mm. We can just keep manufacturing widgets every year and force-feeding it down. And let's get something here. Can we get something to take... How about if we can get rid of all instrumentation? Don't need musicians. How about we get a guy or a gal in there that's good with a computer? Mm. And we have that person make a bunch of records and get a face. Maybe somebody not afraid to take most of their clothes off and dance suggestively. And we'll make videos. And we'll just spit this stuff out. And people will listen to it. They don't even have to buy it. We'll get it by the pennies. But we'll sell so many of them. We don't have to pay the artists because there's no manufacturer. That's what they've done. And we've accepted it. Okay, I'll take that. Now, I love the talent of pop music. Mm -hmm. I don't buy pop music. But don't think those people aren't talented. They're very very talented. They're just not talented creative artists. They're performers. Yes, And they spend years practicing that stuff. And it's something that I'm not crazy about. I'm not interested in dancing. I never saw the Beatles dance. I didn't see Jimi Hendrix dance. I didn't see. And the way James Brown danced was different. Right. You know, the way that Jackie Wilson did it. You know it was different. I'm not interested in that. Even Tina Turner had it different. When Tina Turner would come out and uh, with her singers and everything. But I do acknowledge that it takes a tremendous amount of talent to do this. And it's easy money. It's easy money. Easy money. So it's a shame. Yeah, you know, and I'm still looking for the more independent stuff. You know, people used to do independent, and there'd be bands and be people with instruments. Now there is still some stuff out there, but you got to look really, really hard because the market is flooded with everybody's stuff. So that is the one thing record companies would used to be able to do was filter, give you filter out a lot of stuff. Now it's just you know spitting out, you know, sludge.
0: How do you think uh, we fix that? If there is a fix.
1: Well, you know, I do believe one of the things is, as a musician, there is still a market for people to listen to live music. There's still a market. There are still people that appreciate it. Um, What you're going to need is somebody out of left field you need another Beatles. You know, the Beatles were turned down by every record company in England, some twice. They finally signed to a comedy label. And a, the, the record, they weren't, they, they, Parlophone was a, was a comedy slash classical record label. It was the last ditch. And then when they got signed there, nobody wanted them in the United States. So what happened? They were so forceful that they couldn't be denied. Same thing with, like, the punk movement. They didn't want the punk movement, you know, but it got so big with bands, you know, that were, you know. uh, You know, if you look, my theory is everything is, you know, uh, organic, and the labels get it, and it becomes homogenized. New Wave was punk homogenized, you know. Disco, disco was soul. Yeah, corporatized. Original disco was phenomenal music. I mean, I'm talking yeah. about stuff like Sly and the Family Stone, and I mean even even stuff into the '70s. Some Then by the time it got to the mid '70s, it was so formula, and they were they almost did what they're doing now. They had producers that were doing the same thing and just going out and hiring singers, and you know.
0: So they turn it trash, it, and that's why you, it, you it,
1: got you got to have somebody like you got to have another grunge movement. You got to have see. This is the thing about rap that that is disappointing to me. Was rap was a movement, mm-hmm. and it's no longer. A, it's just corporate crap. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no, there's no real street to it. Right? You, yeah. There's, there's no real. It's just an image. You know. And again, the people that are doing. It, I'm not saying they're not talented, but it's easily. It's easily homogenized. So I don't know. You're going to need something. Fortunately, what happens is when music is no longer mainstream, it still exists. I mean, I played for Hermits Hermits for a while for Peter Noon, and he goes all over the country packing places, you know. Uh, And I played with Rocket 88, the band I told you about. They have a following all over Delaware and Maryland. And, you know, so there's still places to go catch music. A lot of it's independent. And, uh you know, you just got to look really hard. I, I find some good stuff. So
0: so I'm curious, what's one of the best people or most fun people that you've ever played with?
1: Daryl Davis?
0: <laughs>
1: Charlie Gracie? I mean, you ask two questions, the best and the most fun. It's all fun. It's all fun. I play with some real hard hard edges there. You know, one of the ways I really learned where I went from becoming an average guitar player to what some people might like and consider a good guitar player is being yelled at. You see, again, growing up in the horse business gave me a suit of armor. Those old horse trainers, Corey, would tear you apart. I'm sure. Not the owners, and they would be wonderful to the owners, but they would tear you apart, you know. Yeah. Come on, what are you doing? Hurry up, what's wrong with you? Please come on! Stop! Get over here! They were horrible, but they were craftsmen. They were talented. If you could take the heat, you would learn things that you couldn't learn anywhere else. Well, there are certain musicians I played for that were horrible to me. (laughs) Can't you hear this? Right. Have you ever played this instrument before? You try that, folks. You stand there. I was in a session one time, just torn to pieces. Or where you're walking into a studio where I remember walking in the studio with David in. Now, David, for those of you who don't know, he was in a band called the Hooters. He's still in the Hooters. He played Live Aid. Okay. I've literally played with people that played Woodstock, Woodstock, the second Woodstock, the third Woodstock, <laughs> Live Aid i played with people that I've all played with. I'm, I'm the guy who's the also-ran. But anyways, long story short, uh, they, you know, uh, and Kenny Harrison, he's the bass player. Kenny's played with Bob Dylan. The Stones called him up, yep. jammed with him. Uh, he's bass player. And you got to walk into this studio and not mess up. So those are the experiences I cherish, the really tough ones. Because they're the ones that make you rise. Fun... I mean that van morrison tour couldn't be any more fun than that you can't uh, van morrison tour was you know me and, and the hermit's hermit shows and touring at that level is great it's wonderful the crew's amazing you go to you're playing in la and you know michael keaton asks you to get him backstage you get brooke shields backstage oh and all goodness. these stars are out you know and you're talking to people and you don't even realize they're big-time famous people and you're saying stupid stuff, and that's great, you know. Yeah, And I got to be careful because, you know, like I tell stories like with Billy Burnett, you know, you're telling stories and you're all sitting around backstage telling stories and then Billy Burnett tells stories about him and George Harrison or, you know, Paul McCartney and stuff. And Liberty DeVito talks about recording with Paul McCartney. I mean, what do I got to say? Right. So those are the fun things, too, you know, seeing and hearing stories Hearing about how Brian Jones, who, for those of you who don't know, was the founding member and the guy that started the Rolling Stones, what Brian Jones was like, you know, and hearing things like how Elvis was like and hearing stories about Jerry Lee Lewis, those are the things, you know. As far as playing goes, you know, one of my favorite memories would be my brother getting up and singing with Robert Gordon. It was a memory that doesn't even involve me. Seeing my brother on stage singing with Robert Gordon was just amazing, you know and those types of things are little moments that you have that that make everything worth it make all the hell not you know worth it you know
0: so what are you doing today
1: you want to know what my day consists of
0: no no like uh, as in music as in today and the day, you know, i got to do
1: my laundry <laughs> uh, no oh no, from here I'm going to go take care of my horse um okay let's see that's where to start. First things first, this Saturday.
0: Yes, there you go.
1: I'm playing with QDK. QDK, you could call it the QD, cutie, like cutie pie, QDK, or QDK. Why are we called QDK? Because I hate naming bands. <laughs> You know, what are you going to name yourself? You know, it always sounds contrived. That's right. why the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns, why we chose the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns, because it was a name that we, my brother came up with out of a joke, and we just fell down laughing. And we realized, you know, we wanted something...
0: It's a good name, too. And there's
1: no preconceived notion. Yeah, right. And in fact, the whole thing about the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns, and remind me that to tell you about King of the Slark Car Track, was a misdirection. But back to what I'm doing today. QDK is, is Quentin Jones... Q, uh, QD, David Osikinen, K, Kenny Harrison, and we're playing at the Dirty Old Tavern on the edge of town. And the reason we love the Dirty Old Tavern on the edge of town is because it's a throwback bar and we play like it's a throwback and the place is packed. We, there's two rooms. We play the smallest room. Everybody's jammed in there and we're having a ball. It's loud and people are drinking and we're having fun and uh, there's no jerks. Nobody gets out of line. And the place, I tell you what, I've been to, I'm not paid to say this, but I've been to every bar in town. I've been in their kitchens. I've seen the behind the scenes of every place in Lancaster. This is by far the cleanest place in town. This is grandmother clean. I mean, you go back there, it is spit shine. And we love it. However, Dave is playing with the Hooters, so... We have a guest drummer, which is a local guy. His name's Tommy Lianza, who I totally can't stand. Him and I have been fighting with each other since 10th grade. Hmm. For those of you that don't know how long ago I was in 10th grade, that would be around 1978, Tommy and I have been arguing and fighting. But we've known each other all these years, and Tommy can really, you know, he can do the job. Because Phil and David sickenin' shoes is a big set of shoes to fill. Well we when we played Re- Roots and Blues, we had um Liberty DeVito, Billy Joel's drummer sitting in with us. So we always like to have good people playing with us. and Tommy, you might do some work with us later down the road. I'm working on a show with Annabella Lynn from Bow Wow Wow. I'm on Candy, mm-hmm. and we might need two drummers for that. So anyways, and we I always need guys to fill in because the draw you know the good thing about working with great musicians is they're great musicians. The bad thing is is they're great musicians they're always busy. They're always busy. That's right. So, anyways, we're playing at the Daryl old tavern this Saturday night. We're recording songs in the meantime and we're working on other shows and we're going to be doing some shows with Daryl Davis again. Um Daryl's amazing to play with. Uh Daryl came out and saw us play with Linda Gale in Washington and then he requested to have us be his backing band and then we, you know, you were at the show. Yeah. You saw how the show went.
0: It was incredible. It okay. was one of the funnest shows I've ever been to.
1: There you go. So we decided to do more of those. Yeah. Yeah. Daryl Davis is amazing, isn't he?
0: Absolutely amazing. What what a showman. When when he did that whole skit with, with the oh I'm tired and throws the towel on the piano. I was like what in the world? And he starts playing with the towel on the piano. He, he comes up, bear hugs you, plays. Uh, J- uh, what, what was Johnny be good?
1: Johnny be good. Uh, so, he came behind me. And I'm, you know, I'm playing the solo. He walks up behind me puts his arms around me and starts playing the guitar.
0: Right. It's, what a, what a, what a, what a fantastic And doing a heck of a job with it. It did incredible. I was like, what in the world? How do you even have that? He, he couldn't see the guitar neck at all. It just no. was a
1: feeling. Well, if you looked really close, uh, he grabbed it one fret high. Yeah. And I just reached up, took my hand, and I nudged his hand down. Really? Yeah, I just because I knew he didn't. I knew there was no way he could see it, so I just went. That's called being aware. You're right. That's like you know in the sports game when a guy you know when the broken play, you still need everybody you know you need somebody to help you. So I just reached up and did it, and it was great, man. He, yeah, Daryl's amazing. See, I'm very fortunate because of Daryl Davis and Linda Gale Lewis and Robert Gordon. These are real people. That real. These are the re- these are the people that all the, okay, these are the people that the artists that you do buy wish they could be, mm. but you don't buy these people's records because we're not wearing thongs. Right. It's
0: incredible how corporate you have to be in order to be
1: out there. That was the big problem with the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns. Everybody loved the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns that was in the business as a performer. Mm. Everybody that was in the business didn't get it. I was sat at Universal Records. There was a time when the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns had this project called Dark Days, Dark Nights. It was a 20-song album. And all it had a, a, an accompanying comic book, which was illustrated by Jim Smith, the co inventor and the artist for Ren and Stimpy, the T cartoons show, yeah. the Ren and Stimpy show. He did the artwork for the Ren and Stimpy guy. And it was a, it was a horror story. And I was sitting in universal records, explaining it to him. They go, we don't get it. Cause you know, we don't get the whole horror thing. I'm like, wait a second. Hold on. Timeout. Have you been watching TV? Number two, have you ever heard of the universal monsters, Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein and the mummy universal? I'm in I'm in here these like you have a job because of the universal marsh during that time when they made those monster movies, Universal wasn't making money except for on those movies. and you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's the problem because mm. we weren't have we didn't have our boobies out and everything, you know so uh but people like Stephen King, he tweets about the band. Now you figured out how can Stephen King Tweet about the band. How can all these people? I I was talking to Jimmy Vivino. He's the band leader of the Conan O'Brien show, mm-hmm. and he's. I, so he, we were talking about rockabilly, and I said, "What bands do you listen to?" I had just met the guy. I never met him, and he said, "Well, you wouldn't really know." And he was pulling that musician thing where you know I'm cool, so cool. You you don't know who I'm listening to, right? You right. you're not cool enough to know my band. Yeah, he goes, I listen to this little kind of unknown band. They're called the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns. I said, dude, I'm the guitar player for the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns. So my point is the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns has this huge cult following, but mainstream that didn't get it. We were, you know, we, we, you know, look at me. Do I fit the profile? And if you put me and my brother together, we suck all the air out of the room, you know? They couldn't see how, how that was marketable, which is fine. I don't care. I don't care. I have no regrets. It's fine. We played, Reach Around Road Accounts played every major club on both coasts, and we did it all ourselves. Talk about being a do-it-yourself. Do yeah. We played CBGBs on a Saturday night, and then we played the Daha in California. I played the Viper Room you know, right there on, on, on Sunset. The drummer from the Straight Cats had us play his club. But I can't get a job at Highland Pizza in Lancaster to play on a solo. That I can't do. I can't get them to even look at my press kit. But Stephen King knows who I am. Now, you figure that out. That's because of the business side, which is fine. Because Listen, don't get me wrong. I've hit a few home runs. I've had my stuff in movies and network shows. I'm not crying the blues here. But you asked me a question.
0: No, absolutely. And, yeah. and it's a problem uh, that needs to be talked about because people don't know about it.
1: There's a lot of great entertainment out there that you're not getting.
0: Yeah.
1: That's the point. You know, and, and, and that, but that's the way it's always kind of been. Kind of always been, yeah. But you had other things, like there was a time when Stax Records, even though Stax Records wasn't a mainstream label, they had Otis Redding and they had, mm. you know, they had Booker T and EM Jesus. Even Motown was not a mainstream label. Really? You know, yeah, Motown was not a major label, it was an indie label. And, uh, There was a lot of stiff records, there was a lot of tracks records, there were a lot of indie labels that made records that you could go to these places, they were called uh, stores. And what was great, you could actually get out of your house. You know, you didn't order it and have it show up at your house, you actually got in a car and you drove on a say, maybe a Saturday or Sunday, instead of eating nachos and putting chicken wings in the air fryer and staying home you would go out to the mall where there'd be people mm.
0: and you had to actually look at all the right CDs or then. you
1: could go downtown to the record store or wherever and there were people and you would sit there and you would page through it you have a whole afternoon of fun and you'd buy these things called records that people made and recorded at studios that were not cookie cutters you see this operation here you have set up for disc gear we go to any college any radio station anywhere you got identical uh, Yep. identical right you go into a studio today there's a computer with a drop down screen and every effect is identical right identical back in the day studios had to build their own reverb unit so mm-hmm. this particular studio had this sound and that so if you wanted that sound you went there if you want this sound, and they had a color and a sound i could tell as a kid as a kid, I could tell where the record was recorded by listening to it. As a kid, you could today, if I, I do, I have a few students, very little. Most of them are older people in their 40s, 50s. I don't really like to have kids because I ask a kid, I say to a kid, the first thing I'll ask a kid is, Why do you want to play the guitar? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they grunt at me. If I was a kid and you said, why do you want to play the guitar? I had to give you five hours. <laughs> my cousins had guitars. They were gods. They were much older than me. They let me hold the guitar. I was, oh, my God. My brother, Bruce, took me into a music store. They actually had electric guitars. Oh, my God. This is amazing. Nowadays, nothing's amazing. Ah, they got rockets to go up and down. Pfft. Okay, what else? What's for dinner? Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, they don't have lasers in the fog? But I meant like even you know like like when when they, they shoot rockets off, it was a big thing. You right, talked yeah. about it. Oh my god, the guy's in space? Yeah. No, nobody gives a crap about nothing. So that is a that's unfortunate. That's so unfortunate. Yeah. Next question. Next
0: question. What song are you most proud of that you've ever uh been a part of?
1: Oh jeez. You know, I was just listening the other day. Dee Sharp, who did the mashed potato, and she was a big soul singer. Came down and she sang with Charlie. When I played with Charlie, I uh, in his band, he used to always end the night with just a closer walk with thee, right? Mm-hmm. And I produced this song with her and him. And I love that song. On the same time, on the other inspection spectrum, I sat down during the making of our S- Reach Around Rudolphon's second record and I wrote a song called The Girl From Hell. And I wrote it in five minutes, and it's made me a fortune, because it—well, it, what I consider a fortune, probably not what you consider a fortune. I consider a fortune enough money not to have to listen to somebody tell me what time to come into t- the office and I punch would, the clock. To I me, that's a fortune. Yeah. Understood? I'm not yeah. saying I don't have bills. Right, right of course. Uh, but I, I, I have managed to b- get to my age which, uh, and not have to b- answer to people so to me that's you know freedom that's what I'm all about so with that said that song gave me a lot of freedom because it got on a network television show and stuff like that so that's such a question that you know so hard uh I the one song I gave you to play was a cover of an Elton John song the very first Elton John record that I was familiar with was an album called Tumbleweed Connection, which had been about 1972. It Was before he was a superstar.
0: Yeah,
1: it was it's a great record, great really? record. Oh, it's it's, not, its beyond great. Well, of course, it's Elton John. Wake up! What's wrong with yeah, right, 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 you, Corey? That's my bad. What is yep. your what Benny and the Jets? <laughs> no, yeah, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Candle in the wind, right? That's all your El, right, ones, right? All the normal, right? All well, the normal ones. He had a whole—he was had a whole bunch of other stuff that was, you know, not taking anything away from those things, but. Tumbleweed Connection was this great record. So, during COVID lockdown, I wanted to do some recording, and I recorded a a version of that song, and I sent it to my friends in Nashville. Dave Rowe played bass on it. Dave Rowe plays for everybody. What do you mean, everybody? Well, he was Johnny Cash's bass player. How much further should I go? Of course. Would you like me to go further? Go further. Dwight Yoakam, Loretta Lynn. Brian Setzer, John Cougar Mellencamp, how many should I keep going? Jerry Reed, <laughs> and his son is the hottest, most busiest drummer in Nashville. All that pop country goo that's out, all that gooey pop country stuff, which isn't country at all. Mm. He's playing drums on them. He's he's. A, uh, I, and those guys played the drums and the bass on it on this Elton John cover, and I loved the way it came out. And I was, you know, so excited for everybody to hear it. And, and, and it's a and, sin. And and, yeah. and you guys can't get your uh, your stuff Stupid. together here. You get this right. All this all these screens here, and you can't tell a damn thing. Yeah. Anyways, Anyways. so I'm teasing. I'm, I know, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a lot. You know, um, having Stephen King tweet about a song you wrote.
0: That's incredible.
1: And the song which I had given you to play
0: <laughs> The King uh... The King of
1: the Slot Car track and this is a perfect example of Reach Around Rodeo Clowns, why they were you know successful on a artistic level. Um, when you hear the song it sounds very juvenile.
0: Mm.
1: Now a Slot Car is a thing that it was a track that you had that had little slots in it, and you had electric cars, and you had a little little controller, and, and you would run it, and you'd go to a place that was a slot car track, and it was this big, big track, and I mean, so, as kids, they would take you there. So, the lyrics of the song is, he gets the hot chicks because they think he's cool. He used to go to my high school, you know. He's got a cam man and a pistol grip. He's got the right tires. He can make it stick. It's all about... That those are all like little slot car terms you know he's an eight-lane demon burning up the track with eight lanes you know? mm-hmm. so don't you messing around so it's all this stuff and then the last verse is well i heard the news the king is gone he got blown up by the viet cong so when you listen to the record when you listen to it you think it, we're making a joke about you know we're being goofy slot cars and and it's a little juvenile but what people don't understand is the song's not written from perspective of me now it's written from the perspective of an eight year old. When I was eight years old, my parents used to, I guess, when they wanted to get rid of the kids, would drop. And this is another thing, they dropped my brothers and me off at the slide car track. No supervision because Mr. Fry was there and you got out of line. Gotcha. Yep. You got it. Yep, yep, yep. And if you got in trouble, Mr. Fry didn't get sued, your ass got whipped. Mm. So, long story short, I I was too young to actually participate in the slot carring, but, you know, I hung out and watched everybody. And my brothers were young compared to some of the other guys. And there were boys there in military uniforms in the 60s and the 70s. When I was a kid in the 70s, I was scared to death that my brothers would get drafted and get killed in Vietnam. So, um, uh, there was a boy that, ooh, that, you know, of course, everything has a magazine, you know, at least back in the day. Nowadays, everything has a website. But back then we had magazines, which were great because you could buy them and sit there and read them and keep them and everything else. You had something you could hold in your hand. Anyways, there was a guy that was nationally known slot car guy and he was from this area and he uh, wore a uniform and he wrote his cards and he got sent to Vietnam and he got killed. Mm. And the song is actually an anti-Vietnam song written from eight year old's perspective so it's not a joke it's not funny it's a sad song but you don't know that listening to it right and that's where people would get they would love they love the rodeo clowns you know I had another song in the 70s we had a gas crunch in the 70s and i was just 15 16 at that time you know and uh, everybody had their moms V8 engine car, and they would jack it up like thinking it was a hot car. It really wasn't. Like their mom had the tame version, you know. Mm-hmm. They she would have the Grand Prix as opposed to the Lam- to, uh, as opposed to the GTO. Anyways, long story short, anywhere you went, you, they would ask you for gas money because you know uses a lot of gas. Right. I wrote a song called "She Sure Sucks a Lot." It is nothing about a woman. Is nothing about what you think. It's about a 1970s hot rod that sucks a lot of gas. Yes. Yep. Now just because you've got different intentions and different that's your problem. Yeah. And that's how we would do things. And the song. And then when you once you get to the end of the song, you realize the guy's talking about his car. It's a completely different song. And then you're like, wow, that's cool. Cause I remember blah 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 blah. Got it? Yeah.
0: So there you go. That's awesome. We're running out of radio time so we're gonna uh where can people find you again They're, you're going to be at
1: Saturday okay go Saturday to com. <laughs> but this Saturday I'm playing at uh with go qdK to. at the at the dirty old tavern and December 10th at Zootropolis with qdK yep. and Daryl Davis. Davis and I'm working on a show possibly New Year's Eve in the area with Annabelle Lynn from Bow Wow Wow, you know. I want candy, her. Hi, girl. And, uh, you know, you can look. I'm always around here kicking around. If you want to follow us,
0: you can follow us anywhere. Find us anywhere. The Story, Corey Rosen, C-O-R-Y-R-O-S-E-N. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you do podcasting. If you want to look up future events, you can uh, go to our Facebook page, our Instagram page. Facebook.com forward slash the story Corey Rose And we're going to continue a little bit more on, on our Facebook Live. But for you guys on the, listening to the radio, we're going to get you guys back to the music. We're going to talk about fighting. All right. So,
1: fighting. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Reach around rodeo clowns always had, there was always, there was always some kind of commotion going on at some of the gigs. There was, you had all, yeah, you reach around rodeo clowns. Is kind of like the twilight zone in the sense that it's entertaining. Always. Mm. A lot of times exciting and once in a while, horrifying. That's the reach around rodeo clown experience. Um, We have seen audience members start fights. We've seen venue guys start fights. And we've started a few. (laughs) Uh, One time I had an opening band. We had to beat up the opening band before we went on. Why? And I don't condone violence. But Why? Why? Yeah. Because it was in New York City. And you have to learn when you start playing in the big time, there's certain things that happen. You might get bounced off a bill. It happens. Mm -hmm. You show up and get bounced off the bill. So we hired a band to open for us. We got there and we didn't realize that the venue had hired a band to open for us. Who takes precedent? The venue or us? Now, we're not the Rolling Stones. We're just the Reach Around Rodeo Clowns. Right. The venue. The venue. So the venue's opening band got the opening spot. Uh, We're out front in front of the club, and the drummer comes up, and he had 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 a few drinks, which is always bad. Always bad. And he thought he could pick on me because I'm not, you know, I'm not a tough guy. And he started, and he put his hands on me. What he didn't realize is the rest of the band are tough guys. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, always fun. Not serious trouble, just a little trouble. Like, you know, it's like a little. A little spice. I was just going to say that. It's like a little hot sauce on your taco. Yeah. Don't put too much because it'll ruin it, but a little's pretty good, right? A little spice. A little spice is
0: always okay. What's What do you think is the best piece of advice that anyone's ever given you?
1: Peter Noon says you belong here as much as anybody. Mm. He meant the stage. The other big piece of advice is something I gave myself. I allowed myself that when it comes to matters of music and the music industry, to ignore the word no.
0: Elaborate. Give an example.
1: Do you want to book my band? No. Then no, what do you do? Keep at it. When I was 16. I took a friend of mine who played the drums, another guy who played guitar, and me, and we did a band. Notice there was no bass player, right? Mm-hmm. And we were bad. <laughs> we were really bad. We were bad and uh, we, I, I called up all these places in Lancaster. I had no idea what I was doing. And some poor fella had a little corner bar and I convinced this guy to let my band come in there and play for $50. We start playing and during the second song he runs up and waves his arms he's like, stop! Stop! You're disturbing my patrons! Please stop! We stopped. Packed up our stuff, loaded it up. I went to the bar and I stood there. He looked at me and I put my hand out. Where's my 50? He opens the cash register. He gives me $50. I said, thanks. I said, when do you want us back? He says, I'll call you. I'm still waiting for that call. Right. Get my point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good attitude to have. (laughs) Okay, when you want us back? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and the other thing is, you see, I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I... I really learned to play music by failing and having people give me a hard time. Um, I remember forget when I did the Van Morrison tour with Charlie, we had a half hour every night. So it was the same show every night, same list, same way. So then he says, listen, I got a whole summer of gigs down in Wildwood. Would you like to play him? I'm like, yeah. I said, uh, when can we rehearse? He goes, well, there's no rehearsal. Just show up. I was like, okay. I said, well, what song? You got set lists? You have set lists? He goes, no, I, it changes all the time. So, okay. You have a list of songs. He goes, listen, just show up. If you're still playing at the end of the summer, you'll be able to play for anybody. First month, I almost quit. He was just throwing stuff at me. like He'd go, "You I'm expecting all like rock and roll. So he'd be like talking on the mic. could hardly hear him. And he'd turn around to you. You no, know, the side of his mouth. He just crooked the side of his mouth. Like, that's going to make everybody not hear it. He'd go, Sinatra, B-flat. And he'd start playing. <laughs> so your, your cue was Sinatra, B-flat. Never mind that Sinatra recorded hundreds of songs. Say,
0: forget the fact of all the songs.
1: And you couldn't see, Charlie, because I was standing behind him. So I had no idea. I had to listen. I had to listen. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the summer, it didn't matter what he threw at me. I could go there. So what I'm getting at is people had formed some opinions of me in my 20s. Like, oh, he's not that good. And they were right. They also had formed opinions of themselves that they were gods and they were wrong. wrong. And they, since they were gods, didn't have to work. They Mm -hmm. just were naturally gifted and beautiful. As for me, I'm not naturally gifted or beautiful. So I work. You know what I did uh, Yesterday. What? I got up at ten o'clock in the morning. I got up at eight in the morning, which is way too early. This is too early. I got up. I went and did a, a gig, a corporate gig, for one hour. Then I went and taught one lesson. Then I went, and took care of my horse. Then I went home, taught two more lessons. Mm-hmm. Then I went to rehearsal and rehearsed from seven until ten thirty. Then I went home. I ate some soup. Went upstairs grabbed my guitar and practiced for two hours. No,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's what it takes. Every you know, I, 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 there, there's. You know, people say, how much do you practice, actually? and I, I say, I don't practice. I never practice. I always play. Mm. That's a good way to look at it,
0: actually, yeah. Yeah. What is, what's some advice that you can give uh, younger musicians?
1: Don't listen to no. Practice.
0: Practice. Same thing. There we go.
1: Don't give up. Never give up. Never give in. Never submit. This is for everything in life. Mm. Don't be a sheep. This is your life. This is the Corey movie. Everybody in your movie, Corey, is a co-star. Some are just walk-on guests. They're only going to be on one episode and will never be in the rest of the episodes. Don't quit. Don't give up. Follow your dreams. Follow what you want to do. Do what you want. And don't look down your nose at anybody.
0: Make your movie a blockbuster.
1: You know, I I, I one time, I had a friend. He worked at every factory in Lancaster. And a man could do it. And I respect that, too. Because I don't have that skill. Because I'd be the guy with the AR-15. mm now watch the FBI will come and get me. But you know what I'm saying? I couldn't saying. do that. Right. And I respect that. So don't get an attitude. But when it comes time to walk on the stage, you better have an attitude. You better be there. But when you walk off of that stage, you, when you cross that threshold, I always, I learned from Van Morrison. See, while everybody else ran around and acted like an idiot, what I would do is we would have a sound check. I'd go do the sound check. I'd quickly go back to the dressing room, change my clothes, and then start observing. Mm. And I saw Van Morrison walk from his dressing room to the stage with two people on either side of him holding him up. And I thought, there's no way that man's taking the stage. You're going to have to cancel this show. He's inebriated. And the minute his foot crossed that threshold, he was a star. He was Van Morrison. He was amazing. You couldn't take your eyes or ears off of him. The minute he walked up back across that threshold, he was a small drunk Irish guy. Now, I learned that. You know, it's almost like being Batman where you have there's the outfit and then there's not the outfit. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, I I I you know, you have to know when to put on the cape. Yes. And you have to know when to take off the cape. Because if you don't know when to take off the cape, you're gonna get you're gonna get beat. Yes. You're going to be you're going to have somebody come and take your gig.
0: <laughs> What is one thing you know now? What's that? What is one thing that you know now that you wish you had known when you first started?
1: Ah, that's a great question. What I just told you. There you go. Had I known now about the practicing and really working at it and, you know, not just because I thought I was just going to do it as a songwriter. See, I, I envisioned myself writing songs more than a, like, I, okay. Remember I told you about, like see, records when they would come out were an event. Yes, right. Quentin, what are you doing after school? I got this new record, you gotta check this band out. I'd go all the way down to my friend's house, Mark Barley. I lived right over here. You know, These, you know, can is that the camera? That's the camera. Right over there I lived, right over there. So anyways, I'd walk down to my friend Mark Barley's house and he would pull out this record, you know. I never, Van Halen was the first Van Halen out. He's like, listen to this, Quentin. Flap that on there. Oh my God. There's no way I'm ever going to be that. So I'll just write songs. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. I'll just be a songwriter. It's like, who's going to play like that? I didn't realize there's just because you can do that doesn't mean that you're all that. Right. Or just because you can do, you know, there's no one thing. I mean, let me ask you a question. Sure. If you ask 90, you know, 100 people on the street. I don't know why I said 90. Because I'm probably 90%. 100 people on the street, 90 of them, if you asked them who the greatest guitar player was, you know, they would say things like Eddie Van Halen, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, right? Mm-hmm. But who do you think inspired more guitar players than anybody? George Harrison. George Harrison yeah. If it wasn't for George Harrison, a lot of these guys wouldn't be playing. Right? So right. this I did not understand as a young man. I thought, oh my God, that's it. Game over. And then I spent the next 20 years beating myself up not realizing what really matters isn't if you can play like this guy or that guy what really matters can you play like you mm. one of the highest compliments i ever got was by a local musician who's a jazz snob and i'm on a record with charlie gracie that features like all these different guitar players including me he could pick out my my, my tone and my playing. he's like i could spot you everywhere now again, you might think that sucks, like what I do. You might not like what I do. You might only like tapping and pulling off, like Eddie Van Halen, or you might only like jazz, or you might you might not like what I do. But what I do is me. So that's the other thing: develop yourself, your own style. And you have to, you know, just because you're doing your own style, you still have to use things that people recognize. It's like you know, you can tell those. I always say the difference between improvising and and, and reading the music is like the difference between me telling you a story and me reading you a story. So me telling you the story, I can use whatever words I want, correct? Mm-hmm. But I still got to use words you understand.
0: Correct. How's that? That's, that's a great answer.
1: Good. I get any money for like, that?
0: <laughs> you get Pascal and click to dollars. There values. you go. Last question. Unless you want to talk about anything else.
1: I'll not you up here? To, hey, listen, man.
0: I'm here. It's up to you. I'll do what you want. What is one of the funniest or worst things that ever happened to you on a gig?
1: Okay. Let me think about that for a minute. Um, Oh, God, there's a lot of them. I mean, like, uh, you know, like I was in a band in the 80s, and we were going to play in New York City. We were so excited that we decided to pack up the night before to be ready you know and we said let's take this trunk and put all the cables in this trunk and everything you know and we're on the Jersey Turnpike I'm like who brought the trunk you know nobody brought any trunks and this was you know so we show up without half our gear and, you know just some dumb things like that um, I know I'm missing something you know I remember uh, you know just all kinds I, I said to Wendell one night we're playing I'm like Wendell you see that guy in the audience? Look just like Lemmy. (laughs) It turned out it was Lemmy. (laughs) You know, there's a million stories like that, you know. uh, Joan Osborne, I was at the CMJ Music Festival, and there was this girl there with a nose ring and and curly hair and bib overalls, and I walked by her, and I almost said, who are you, Joan Osborne? It was was Joan Osborne. Um, uh, I was uh, on the Van Morrison tour here you go. This is both horrifying, funny, and ridiculous. He had two guitar players in this band. He had one guy that was probably in his mid 30s. He wore a little suit, he had his hair, it was all permed up, and he had little horn rimmed glasses. And he played a Gibson ES335 guitar all the way up under his chin. And he had a little music stand. He was the MD, right. musical director. Well, first of all, whenever anybody introduces me to the music director, I know that guy is an idiot. Yeah, he is an idiot, right? There. he's going to give you a hard time. Mm. Anyway, so, they put, you know, I didn't pay any attention to me. Then there's had this other guy, the scruffy old guy, you know. And um, he, uh, I got it in my head that he was just some guy that was a tech that filled in on a second guitar part, you know, because bands will do that. Their tech will be like, they need a third guitar player or something, right? right. Yeah. So I'm walking around one day and, uh, now you know a little background. Charlie Gracie, I, I put it to, when Charlie turned eighty. Paul McCartney did a video like a, of him singing "Happy Birthday" and sent it to Charlie. Okay, do I need to go anymore? more? How important in rock and roll Charlie is. In Charlie's book, Paul writes the foreword for Charlie's book. Yeah, so that's how important you. I happen to be in the book, which I thought was really cool. You ask you, you know, those times when your your wife's. You Notice know, I said pure wives are leaving you, and people are throwing you under the bus and saying you're this and that. But when you end up in a book and Paul's writing the foreword for it, that's a nice little, nice little pat on the back for yourself to realize you haven't wasted everything. So back to my story. Um, this guy comes up to me. He's an English guy. He's this old guitar player, and he's like really quiet, really shy. He's like, "What's it like playing with Charlie Gracie?" Oh man, I I turn it on, you know. I'm, it's great, man. I mean, Charlie's one of the originals, you know. He's a great guy to work for. He's like, and I said, you know, Paul McCartney just recorded one of Charlie's songs, and I'm in Charlie's band. I said that's so cool because it's kind of like it's kind of like Paul McCartney's covering a band you're in, you know. And the guy just looks at me, you know. He's just looking at me. shakes his head. And he's like, yeah, and he walks away. End of story. So I thought. Oh, is that Paul McCartney? So here I am, and it's uh, oh my God. no, it's not Paul. No, so no, okay, I was going to say that. No, <laughs> I'm not that dumb, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. So here I am a couple of months later, and there's a special Paul McCartney at the cavern. They had reopened a new cavern, and Paul had just come out with this record called "Run Devil Run," mm. and it was all these rock and roll songs that he grew up with that he recorded. And on that project, he recorded Charlie Gracie's song, Fabulous. So it's like on, you know, I'm just like flipping around the channel, and there it is on the television. Oh, oh it's Paul McCartney. I'm watching, and he goes, he ends this song, and he goes, all right, all right. the next song, folks, is by Mr. Charlie Gracie. It's called Fabulous. And Paul's playing the bass, and the camera's on him, and the guitar starts, ding, 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 and the camera pans over. It's that guy. He's the guy that recorded with it. Right? I'm just sitting there going, but it turns out the guy's name was Mick Green. He's one of the most famous studio oh guitar God. players in England. He played on all these classic rock hits. He was in the Blues Breakers. He's like amazing. He was in Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. He was in all these bands. And I'm like, da, 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 da. another one, Liberty DeVito's playing with the Rodeo Clowns, right? And we're playing in Brooklyn at this Rockabilly Festival. And I said to him, listen, Lib, get there early. There's going to be a lot of kids. There probably four or 500 kids are going to be there. So it'll be a madhouse. Right. A couple of days later, I'm watching HBO. There's Billy Joel in Red Square. Half a million people. Liberty's playing for a half a million people. Not 400 kids. Half a million people. Then the other story is the one I just told you. I told the Liberty about the Paul McCartney thing. And he just kind of did the same thing the guitar player did. And then later on, he sends me a picture of him and Paul in the studio. He recorded with Paul McCartney. And I'm telling them this story about how I. I so I stop telling these stories except for when I'm on a podcast. But these would these fit the bill of the questions. Yeah, no, those are it, good gig it's, questions, it's right? Good ones. You know, you know, not recognizing. I, I I've there's been millions of people I didn't recognize. Like Michael Keaton, I told you that. I'm standing there, and this guy comes up from back from the back of the venue, and he's like locks his eyes on me, and he's making a beeline for me. I'm like who is this, is this guy coming towards me? Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, where do I know this guy from? Where do I know him from? And I'm thinking like that, go to school with him, where? Who is this fella, you know? And he comes up and he stands right there and he's like looking at me like this, like I'm supposed to say something. Like I'm so, like, I'm supposed to I get, like I, 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 I care. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have no idea who this clown is. And he goes, hey, I'm like, hey, he says, can you get me backstage? I'm thinking, who is this clown? And I looked at him, and all of a sudden, the light just flew, you know changed that he was standing in. It's Batman. It's Michael Keaton. I'm like, sure, come on back. like, get out of here, kid. Who are you? Get out of here. What's wrong with you? So things like that happened all the time. If you ever get big, make
0: sure you know your celebrities.
1: Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Good. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Let me know. Hey, Hey, anybody out there, if you're listening to this, Go to my Facebook page, Quentin Jones. You'll see me. I'm the guy with the big red guitar. And tell me you enjoyed the show. Let me know. You know, sometimes I do this stuff and it's crickets. Cricket, 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 you know? And then you go play a show like at Zootropolis, the place that's got people lined, lined out the door, lined out the door, right? Right. Out the door. And you think any one of them will talk to me after the show? You think one person Corey came up to me and hung out and said, "Boy, you're great. You did good. Let's get a Let me Let me buy you a slice of pizza." No. No. Right home. Put my PJs on and I had to turn on Gomer Pyle and that was my night. You know, I wonder if they think you're untouchable. I am the most touchable guy you can find. I'll let anybody touch me. <laughs> <laughs> My brother and I used to go. I we used to say the rodeo because my brother, uh, God, he Wendell is just like Wendell's got uh, uh, tremendous talent, tremendous talent. I like he has so much talent. I would like to smack him, but he's too big. He'd beat the crap out of me and twenty other guys. He's huge. He's got arms on him. He literally picks a horse. He can pick up. He literally, I'm not pick up a horse. He can pick up a horse. I am not kidding you. Now he doesn't take all four legs off the ground. What happens if a horse doesn't want to back up? He'll put his shoulder between their front legs, lift the horse up, and push him back. Okay. So, um. He, he is the horsepower. He's, he, 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 you know. I forgot what I was saying there, but, uh, oh, he used to say to me, how come nobody talks to us after the gig? I said, because you're frightening. <laughs> he's you're terrifying. You're a walking refrigerator. <laughs> hey, I want to talk to us. couple of idiots standing here.
0: Oh, my goodness. But
1: anyways. <laughs> Say something to me on Facebook if
0: you're out there. Yeah, and I and argue Say say if you want if you want to congratulate people go up to them and congratulate them. They're, I mean, some people might be annoyed by it, but talk to your musicians, man.
1: am standing there backstage at the Van Morrison show. This is a good story for you, you would like this one.
0: Mm.
1: And I'm blind in my right eye. Mm. So I don't have any peripheral vision. Back the story up. Rumor goes around the big celebrities having dinner and they're gonna show up. So, anyways, I'm standing there. Like this, and right two inches from my shoulders, Eric Clapton. Oh my gosh. And two inches from his shoulders, Robbie Robinson from the band. The band, the band. Yeah. And I turned to Eric and I said, Hey Eric, Quentin Jones, how are you? I said, I'm with Charlie Gracie's band. He goes, Oh, I love Charlie Gracie. I was like, can I get a picture with you? He goes, nah, I don't want any pictures today. I said, like, okay. He says, oh, yeah, I used to listen to Charlie as a kid. I said, well, we're going to be playing soon. He said, that's great. I said, would you like to meet him? He goes, I'd love to meet Charlie. I'm like, hey, go get Charlie. Charlie, came out. I'm like, hey, Charlie this is Eric Clapton. First part of the ridiculous part of the story is I'm introducing Charlie Gracie to Eric Clapton. Me. Me, yeah, all right. Eric, this is Charlie. Hey, nice to meet you. Charlie. Goes, can I get a picture with you? And all of a sudden, all the pictures start going. <laughs> and and Eric standing there with this uncomfortable look on his face because <laughs> he had just told me he didn't want any pictures, you know. But Charlie, he don't care. You're getting a picture, right? Of course. Afterwards, I found out that you know they were they were him and and uh, Robbie were having dinner, and I was thinking, you know, must be some this is in L.A. Must be some posh restaurant. Turned out to be a Denny's. Mm. They were eating at All those guys. Like all those English guys, like when I played with uh, Peter Noon, after the show he wanted to get greasy burgers and fries. Wow. They love that crap, you know, and milkshakes and stuff like that, you know.
0: It's crazy when you whenever you see like someone famous coming to town. There's always like, oh, we spot recently Justin Bieber came over, and they were like, oh, we saw him at IHOP or Waffle wherever wherever he went. It's like, well, they're just people. There's people, right? At, at some point, you gotta Maybe realize they like
1: hot dogs too, or yeah, like, right.
0: They're ice gonna, cream too. You gotta realize people are just gonna be people. And you'll find crazy people all over the place that you wouldn't expect to find them.
1: Yeah, you'd be surprised, you know. And uh, you know, usually people. There's a way of of of, of doing it too. Of course, you know. I right. give. Yeah, if you see somebody out, you give them their space. Yeah, but hey, you know, hey, I can't help it. Clapton came to my show. Right, I, it's like so. I say what the hell I want, you mm-hmm. know, but. If I would see somebody on the street, I wouldn't necessarily. Hmm. I uh, one thing I'll say about Peter Noon—he—he—he—he he, he, he did a show one time, and we were like, I mean, he would—he would stand there after the show and sign anything. You didn't have to buy stuff from him. If you brought something from home, he would sign it. He would talk to it. It could be a line mile long. He wouldn't leave till the last person got attention. Right. However. When he went to eat his greasy burger, he didn't want you coming up to the table. Of course, right. It, there's a time and a place for everything. You know, and he would say, I just stood in for an hour talking to people. Now I want to get something to eat. You want to interrupt? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Especially after the performance, that's the time to meet yes. any performer. Do it.
1: That's the time. That's right. So there you go. There you go. Corey, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Did you enjoy the show? Well, no, I meant the one I did. Yes, I enjoyed this show, but the one that I did with uh, at, oh, okay. with Daryl Davis and the QDK.
0: Oh, yeah. That, oh, a great show. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to make it out of my way to come to the December 10th one.
1: And, you know, don't forget, folks, Saturday. It's Saturday. And uh, the food? It's y- good. It's great there. I mean, great sandwiches, great bar food, and and you, uh, the drinks are priced right. It's a throwback. Yeah, right. It's it's a throwback place. And the, and it oh, has price. beautiful knotty pine in there from like a mid-century. And it's owned by the same family for generations. Wow. So, you know, they really have pride in the place, you know. I, I love it. So if you're not doing anything Saturday night, uh, get on down to the Dirty Old Tavern. I mean, if you like real, I mean, if you just like rock and roll, okay, like rock and roll and cold country. Old school country, old school rock and roll played with energy mm. and fun. And we have fun with the audience and we tease each other and we joke. It's a great time. Come on down. And there's no cover. No cover. It's free.
0: Incredible. When does it start? Nine o'clock or whenever we feel like it. Whenever. You, and it goes into whenever,
1: whenever you feel we feel like fe- it. We don't take a break.
0: I know that's a, that's another thing that really surprised me because every every nowadays you go to gigs and they they'll do three sets breaks in between
1: no breaks no breaks you guys
0: did no breaks no breaks a song into each other one flawless no like, breaks you look at each other start do you, you and- want to hear
1: something else that was the first time we all played together I know I know
0: and that's and that's and that's what's so crazy about it is that. It when you know your stuff, you can do stuff like it, it doesn't matter. Well, it's who because you play I spent with. years with Charlie exactly. Gracie
1: and, and Robert Gordon and guys that you know. I already did my time. I already got yelled at for not knowing right. where you know what chord change was in the Sinatra B flat song. Right, that's where I did made my bones, so that we can go on stage and I can hang with guys like that. You know, I always approach this. They're the ones with the talent. I'm hanging on, you know. Right. And then it's good when you can do it. And so you just get up there. And that's, you know, there is all our shows. I mean, we know what we're doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Kenny and I have played together a lot. And I played with Liberty more than once. And Liberty was, but, the, the, but Daryl Davis, I, we didn't even know what songs Daryl was doing. Really? He sent us a song list and he didn't do half the songs. He did other songs we never heard of. Didn't you hear him? A couple things like now these guys aren't gonna know this song. Was, all right, here we go. But the spontaneity of it—that's what QDK is. That's what all my projects are. We're spontaneous. We're real. We're doing it. We're letting it hang out. We're letting it go. We're go. I got. I have no guitar pedals. Did you see any pedals on my rig? No. I got a guitar, no. a cable, and an, an amp. amp. And that's what it is. Wow. It's pure. It's pure un unfiltered pure.
0: Be sure to check out Quinn Jones this Saturday or his website. Find out all of his events coming up in future or past, some past ones still. If you have enjoyed this episode, please be sure to check us out anywhere you do your podcasts. Any ding, ding, ding. That's the <laughs> bell. <laughs> Click the bell.
1: Don't forget to, to, uh, Visit my... Right. Uh, well, well, relax. Did you, they caught you finally? I thought... <laughs> Think the law finally caught up with your quarry? Never take me alive. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Listen, I want to see some engagements on my darn face. Am I still not allowed to swear? Go
0: I just want... Because we're in a good night. Okay, I'm not going to
1: swear. We're, you know what? I wouldn't want to get you in trouble. I appreciate that. At least not now. Not what now. I will do later. is I will get your confidence. <laughs> and then at the point that you totally week. believe... They, then I'm gonna ruin you. I will ruin you. But for now, for I'm now, gonna. It. I want to see some engagements on my Facebook page. Darn it!
0: Yeah. Make sure you stop being a creep and get on my page. <laughs> Don't be a stalker. Be engage. Show That's your presence. Right. Show your presence.
1: That's what they used to say on Leave It to Beaver. You ever see the show Leave It to Beaver?
0: Uh, it rings a bell.
1: No, oh, you have to see Leave It's the corniest show it ever. Should. But there's kids, and it was always like. Hey, Corey, where's your creepy girlfriend? You know, everything was creepy. What are you, a creep? Mm. All right.
0: Sorry. Like, subscribe, share, comment, all the things. Be sure to go out to QDK's show this Saturday. With all that said, if you really want to support us, we have even merchandise if you really want to care. We have stickers. We got stickers that look like this with the logo. He's got it right there.
1: I'm putting this baby on my guitar case.
0: And we have shirts and hoodies with the first 50 guests
1: on the back. Wait a second. Are you telling me that you have hoodies and shirts and you gave me a sticker?
0: I'm going to give you a hoodie and a, a shirt. I'm going <laughs> to. Pre, it's pre-ordered right now. So they're not here yet. But we got them and we're going to get them. I trust you. I'll give you. I'll get you one. But well, here's the thing. You're not part of the first 50 guests either. All right. So you'll be doing part of the second, That'd second be shirt.
1: That'd be yeah.
0: With all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. If you want to check us out, we have guests coming on tomorrow. Vince Stefan, Vince DiStefano, he's an awesome photographer around here. And Friday we have Octavia, Octavia's interview coming out. And Saturday we have Alexia Christian coming on the show. And I hope you guys stay tuned for those things. With all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. See you guys later.
1: Bye. Take care, folks.